A few months ago, uh, probably not unlike you do in your home, every once in a while you clean out closets and uh, you find things, you say, oh, I didn't know that was in there, right? Well, we had one of those moments uh, not too long ago when we were cleaning out closets and looking at files and ran across this, which was, uh, it says, a service of organization for Melanie Park Baptist Mission. Uh, this was the the flyer created for the first service back on March 12, 1967, when this church began. And what's interesting about that uh, for me this morning is that there are a number of people listed in this uh, brochure, and one of them is Reverend C.D. Walker, who was the, it says, city missionary sent from the church to help establish as a church plant Melanie Park. Well, I had the opportunity to meet Mr. Walker this morning. He happens to be in town spending time with Mr. and Mrs. Lowry. I think he's here for a reunion. I believe Mr. Lowry and Mr. Walker went to junior high and high school together, if I'm remembering correctly. So I, it would, I would be amiss if I didn't take the time to recognize Mr. Walker and his wife, Anita, right? If you all would stand up, let us recognize you and thank you. In case you're doing the math, that's about 45 years ago that this uh, church began, and Mr. Walker was a part of that, and uh, I hope it's an encouragement to see uh, the people that are here this morning and the faith that continues uh, as fruit of your labor, so praise God for that. The other thing I want to mention to you before we open uh, the Bible to look at our passage this morning is last week I showed you a fantastic video about family ministry here at Melanie Park. And uh, wanted you to know there are a number of people who wanted to see that who weren't there Sunday morning. If you'll go to our website, you'll find it in several places. If you go to children's ministry, it's on that front page. Student ministry, it's on that front page. If you'll go to the sermon uh, for that Sunday, you'll find it there as well. But that video really represents the heart of family ministry here at Melanie Park. And we wanted to make sure everybody had an opportunity to see that and would encourage you uh, t- to take a look at it. And, and with that in mind, I just want to remind you, as Roger mentioned in the announcements, that we are still uh, hoping and praying for people to, to really fill a part of that mission by being uh, a teacher this summer. Uh, this summer is a great opportunity because it allows you to kind of dip your toe in the water. Instead of committing yourself to a full semester, you can do just a week, um, just one Sunday and just get a sense of what it's like to be a part of a family ministry here at Melanie Park, to serve in that way, and I would just urge you to do so. Um, it would be a great uh, blessing to us if you would. So if you would, go ahead and pull out your Bible, and let's uh, pick up where we left off last, Genesis chapter 45. As a reminder, when we left off last, uh, there was a very special cup from Joseph's own home that was placed in the mouth of Benjamin's sack. When that was discovered, the stewards said, then we must take Benjamin back as a slave. Joseph's brothers were unwilling to let him go alone, so they all traveled together back to Joseph's house to plead for the life of their brother. Judah even going so far as to offer his own life in order to have his brother Benjamin released. When Joseph saw this monumental act of self-sacrificing love, he broke down with emotion. Look at chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph 
could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried. Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him. And when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. I read this, and I think this is potentially one of the most captivating, most emotionally special moments in all of Scripture. It's been building and building and building. And as I said earlier, we finally arrived at the moment we've been waiting for, where Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers. You see, up until this point, he's kept a distance, even going so far as to speak in a foreign tongue so that a steward had to interpret, it, interpret that language into a Hebrew language that his brothers could understand. But in this passage this morning, he now speaks to them directly in their own tongue. And not only that, he asks his stewards to leave the room because this is an intimate moment for his family. And this is where the long-awaited reconciliation begins. But you'll notice the response of his brothers. It says that they were dismayed. In my version, really, more literally translated it, they were terrified. (laughs) They were paralyzed in fear. And do you blame them? You know, the brother that they thought was dead is not only alive, he's standing before them as the most powerful ruler in all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. Now what's going to happen? What's he going to do? What's he going to say? They are at his mercy. Dismayed is a pretty small word. Terrified probably is better. Paralyzed in fear. But look at what Joseph says. This is beautiful to me. Verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, "Mm, Please, come close to me. And they came closer, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery into Egypt. And now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will still there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over all his household and ruler over the land of Egypt. What beautiful words. Please come closer, he says to his brothers. Draw near. This is a safe place. You don't need to be afraid. It's going to be okay. And then he tells them, don't be grieved or angry with yourself for the things that you have done. Now, when Joseph tells his brothers this, he is in no way condoning or excusing the behavior when he says this. He's not suggesting, oh, it doesn't matter. It's going to be okay. That's not what is happening here. What Joseph is doing is he is redirecting their focus 
from themselves to God. He said, don't be angry with yourselves because in essence, you have no justifiable excuse. Turn to God because only he is your deliverer. Draw near to me, Joseph says, but more importantly, draw near to God. I will forgive you, but my forgiveness is not what you need. You need to find forgiveness in God alone. And then he says in verse 9, Hurry, go tell Dad the great things that God has done. Tell him, Joseph says in verse 8, How God made me ruler over the land of Egypt and how he has made me a father even to Pharaoh himself. See, Joseph is making sure that that none of his family, including his dad, looks to him for their security. Their deliverance is not found ultimately in Joseph's authority. Instead, it is found in God, who orchestrated all the events, giving him the power to protect them in the first place. He then instructs them to bring their family back to Egypt because they would not be able to survive the famine for another five years without his help. You see, that's the whole point. Like he said in verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. And he's pointing their eyes to God who is the great deliverer. And Joseph is the means by which he has chosen to carry it through. You see, the move to Egypt is necessary. Because you'll remember back when we looked at Joseph's deliverance of them the first time by giving them food. They took that grain, they went home, and as we talked about, they had enough grain to last them about a month, about five weeks. And then they had to take that what was a two-week journey back to Egypt to get more so that they could continue to survive during this time of famine. So Joseph just told them, hey, that famine's going to last another five years. Joseph's brothers knew that they could not make that two-week trip every 30 days and physically or financially survive. Their only hope was in the promised provision of Joseph through the power of the great deliverer, God. And so they return home, and they are set to tell their dad the news. And they're excited about what is going on. Look at verse 14. It says, then he fell, this is Joseph, then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck, and he wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept on them, and and afterward his brothers talked with him. And when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you shall eat the fat of the land. I read this and I think, what a powerful testimony of Joseph's stewardship of God's blessings. When Pharaoh and his his stewards heard, the, the text tells us that it pleased them. Regardless of the fact, as we know, that the Egyptians hate 
Hebrew shepherds. We learned that already in our passage. Despite the fact that these were technically foreigners in the land, they could not be more pleased that Joseph had been reunited with his family, no matter who they are. And the reason is, is because Joseph has, had, has done such a good job to, to earn the respect of the leaders in the land because of his uncompromising integrity through his faith and trust in God alone. You'll remember earlier, Joseph even said that he had become like a father to Pharaoh. As a father, that means it tells me that Joseph was a friend and and a mentor. Everyone in Egypt recognized that Joseph was the mastermind with this of this surplus of food during an uh, an unprecedented famine. And yet through it all, Joseph was humble and faithful to give God the glory. Joseph understood that God is the one who gave him favor in the eyes of man. And so when they have an opportunity to give Joseph something in return, they literally roll out the red carpet. They give them wagons for their family to ride in as they return from e- to Egypt. The reason that's important is because that's a long journey, two weeks. And they were able to make it as brothers, strong and, and, and healthy, but there's going to be young children and elderly. And the only way they're going to make that trip is if they have transportation like Pharaoh has offered them he gives them clothes and in fact tells them don't worry about packing any of your provisions because you'll have everything you could possibly need when you arrive here he gives them livestock to add to their livestock already money for their journey and when they return they will be given some of the best land that egypt has to offer under the personal care of the most powerful ruler in the land their brother, Joseph. And as they leave, I have to laugh a little bit at the statement that Joseph makes to his brothers. Look at verse 24. He says, So he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Don't quarrel on the journey. <laughs> you guys be nice to each other, you hear? I think about that, and I, and I think, you know, they're probably excited. They've been showered with gifts, and all these great things are happening, and they're going to go tell their dad all that's going on. But, but I think there's something else that's going on here. I think these parting words from Joseph were just another reminder to make sure that their focus was on God and not themselves. You see, because when they returned to Canaan to tell their dad, everything that includes some explanation of how joseph presumed dead was alive how they had explained to him that that bloody coat was evidence that his brother their brother and his son had been torn to shreds by an animal and now they have to tell the truth they're going to have to to pull back the curtain of their lives And so Joseph is telling them, don't argue. Be honest with Dad and trust in the Lord. As you might expect, when they arrive home and give Jacob this news, his response was very similar to theirs. His jaw hit the floor and he too was speechless. Look at verse 26. And they told him, 
speaking to Jacob, Joseph is still alive. And indeed, he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. But he was stunned, for he did not believe them. When they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob was revived. Then Israel said, it is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. As I mentioned during our time of communion, I believe this is a turning point for Jacob. It's here that he moves from passivity to decisive action, from disbelief to trusting in the Lord. And we know that because of what happens next. Look at Chapter 46, verse 1. As I mentioned during communion, it says, So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. You see, Jacob turns to God in faith, offering sacrifices of praise, perhaps for the first time in a very long time. And again... I think this is more than just a a simple genuflection in front of an altar. See, Jacob is leaving the promised land. And I think it's very possible that he is reminded of a promise that was given to his father's father, Abraham, and, and then to Isaac, and I feel certain, passed down to Jacob himself. And it may be this promise that he has in mind. Let's look at that together. Turn to Genesis chapter 15. Keep your finger where you're at, because we'll come back. But Genesis chapter 15. Verse 13. Read that with me. And God said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge this nation whom... They will serve, and afterward, they will come out with many possessions. You see, I wonder if when Jacob is offering his sacrifice, about to leave the land, if he had this promise in mind. Because when they leave the land of Canaan, they will enter into a land that is not their own. Jacob has not been there. He does not know what to respect, not to, he does not know what to expect. Although he's taking steps of faith, it tells us that his mind is filled with fear. He has a promise from God, but he just doesn't know what the future will hold. I believe this is what he has on his mind. And the reason I believe that is the case is because what happens next in verse 2. Look at that with me. It says, And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said this, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. See, God graciously reassures Jacob of his covenant promise. He does so because he knows what is on his mind. Do not be afraid, God says, for I am with you. I will make you a great nation, as I promised. And I will be the one 
who will deliver you as I promised. The text says that after this dream, Jacob arose and went into Egypt with all of his family. Jacob was now following the Lord and his family was following him. The next several verses in chapter 46 describe in detail the members of Jacob's family. And then in verse 26, it summarizes it. So if you would, turn to chapter 46, verse 26. It says, All the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. (laughs) I read this and I say, No wonder he was fearful. The great nation that God had promised is down to 70 people. And here they are going into foreign territory during the time of a famine to be introduced to a man who claims to be Jacob's long-lost son. No wonder he was frightened. But he did the right thing. He stopped at the altar and worshipped the Lord. He drew near to God, and as we see, God drew near to him. Jacob awakens from the dream, and his faith is awakened as well. He begins to trust in the Lord, and the nation of Israel, however small it may be at this point, will follow his long-awaited leadership. This is the turning point in our story. As we've said in the beginning, this really is the moment that we've been waiting for. As we think about what's been taking place and in, in what we've looked at together this morning, what really is a remarkable story, I want us to consider how it applies to our life as well. I don't know about you, but today is one of those rare times in our study of Joseph where we kind of end with a sense of peace. <laughs> because up until this point, we end every chapter or every study with somebody else in another trial or test of their faith. But here we can finally take a deep breath and realize that it has all come to this point where we find peace. And so what I want us to do is to consider what this passage has to tell us about where we go to find peace. And although there are a number of things, I I think there are three in particular that I want us to consider together. I believe we learn that God's peace is found in God's forgiveness, in God's forgiveness or sovereignty, and in our response of worship. As we talk about God's forgiveness to begin with, I want to share with you a conversation that I had with Lindsay Christensen this past week. Uh, Lindsay and her husband Caleb have been a part of Melanie Park for a while now, and and Lindsay and I were actually uh, classmates at at DTS. But Lindsay now serves as a a counselor and COO at Parkridge Pregnancy Center, and so as you can imagine, she is faced with this topic of forgiveness on a regular basis. Many of the young girls that Lindsay and her colleagues minister to come to them wondering if God could ever forgive them for the things that they've done. Some of them having had an abortion. In fact, what they find themselves doing as they're pregnant again is feeling lost in that they don't have any other choice. And so Lindsay helps them understand the gift of God's grace, the sanctity of life, and the forgiveness they find 
through faith in Christ alone. But still, Lindsay says so many of these girls, even understanding that, still still struggle. They, they say, I know that God has forgiven me for my past decisions, but I don't know if I can forgive myself. Lindsay says that these girls are often buried under a mountain of guilt. And it's been difficult to help them find a way out. Until recently, she ran across a statement by Priscilla Schreier in her book, The Resolution for Women. And it says this, listen closely. She says, the capacity to forgive yourself is personally impossible. You can't do it. Nobody can. But there's no need to be dismayed or defeated over this because absolutely no place in Scripture are we told that this is something that we are supposed to do. She says, the Bible doesn't tell us to forgive ourselves. Lindsay goes on to explain that it's important for us and for those we minister to to understand that God's forgiveness is complete. Because when we say that I just can't forgive myself, what we are actually insinuating is that Christ's forgiveness is not enough. By insisting that we must forgive ourselves, Lindsay says, we remain a slave when God has already set us free. I believe this is precisely the message that Joseph has for his brothers. He said, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves for your past decisions. The peace you're seeking can be found in God's forgiveness alone. Nowhere else. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. Surrender yourselves before the Lord and know that he alone is your deliverer. As Paul tells the Romans, people are made right with God or people find peace when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of sins, and they put their trust in him. His forgiveness is where healing begins. And it's the only place that we find lasting peace. So if God's forgiveness is what sets us free from our past, I believe it's God's sovereignty that gives us hope for our future. If you think back to the conversation that Joseph had with his brothers, the emphasis on God's sovereignty could not be more clear. Joseph said, God sent me before you. God told me about the famine. God gave me this position of authority as ruler over all the land. God preserved a remnant. And so despite the sinful decisions of his brothers, God was the one orchestrating the events to carry out his purpose and plan. As Joseph would later tell his brothers, you meant evil against me, and God meant it for good. Let me tell you why I believe this should be comforting. This is one of the many places in the Bible, where it teaches us that we are responsible for the decisions that we make. And it is clear that that our choices matter, and they always come with consequences. We are, in fact, accountable to God for the decisions we make. But His purposes are not inhibited by our actions. 
In other words, our decisions matter. But our choices don't determine the future. God does. As one scholar put it, God's purposes are ultimately fulfilled through and in spite of human deeds, whether or not those deeds are morally right. I personally believe this should be a great source of peace when we recognize that we are not in control. I don't know about you, but I'm very thankful for that. I am thankful that God stands sovereign over all things and He is the one that is in control. And when we put our trust in Him, we can rest in the promise that He will work all things together for His good purposes, no matter what anybody else intends. This conviction is the central truth behind the assurance of our salvation. Because when we surrender our life to Christ in God's sovereignty, He tells us that our future is determined. And Paul explains it this way in his letter to the Ephesians. Listen to this. He says, When we believed in the message of our salvation, at that moment we were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance, in view of our redemption as God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. Your future could not be more certain than it is when it rests in the hands of God. That should give you peace. It should motivate you to walk in the good works that He, in His sovereignty, mind you, prepared for you beforehand. Trusting in Him to guide you to places that you cannot see. Working all things together for the good of those who love Him and for those who are called according to His purposes. I know that there are many times I have conversations with people who who find themselves in difficult situations. And we've all been in those places that are so dark, we can't figure out how in the world we're going to get out of this. We become, like Jacob, paralyzed in fear. Let me encourage you with some of the things that I tell them. And it's very simple. Do the next right thing. Do the next right thing. I think so frequently we get paralyzed because we want the next ten things. And we can't take the next one thing. We need to understand that God often gives us only the light we need for the next step in front of us. And we need to trust Him to do the next right thing. Finally, our passage teaches us that we find peace in our worship. As we talked about, Jacob had mostly been miserable for the last 23 years. He was paralyzed in fear, a victim of passivity. But everything changed. Everything changed that day at the altar. It was here that he shifted his circumstances, from his, his focus from his circumstances to his deliverer. He, he turned from a, a self-focus to a, a God-focus. He drew near to God. And remember what God said to him. Listen to these words again. He said, Do not be afraid, for I will, be, I will go with you, and I will be your deliverer. The writer of Hebrews says something similar to you and I when he writes this. Therefore, he is able also to save forever, forever, those who draw near to God through Christ, since he always lives, 
always lives to make intercession for them. See, when God is for us, no one can be against us. His faithful love endures forever. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. He is always with us. See, when His Spirit indwells within us, that's the fulfillment of that promise that I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I am with you always, I will be your deliverer. When we bow before Him in worship, we are reminded that we find redemption in Him. We are reminded that we find deliverance in Him. We are reminded that we find peace in Him. Therefore, as the writer of Hebrews reminds us, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and grace to help us in a time of need. Draw near to God and worship, and He will give you peace. Rest in His sovereign control, and He will give you peace. Carry the burden of sin no more. His forgiveness is complete. That should give you peace. God is our peace. Trust in Him alone. Let's pray together. Father, what a beautiful, wonderful, amazing, grace-filled passage. We could look at this ten times over the next ten weeks and never reach the bottom of the goodness that you have in store through these words. I pray that it fills us up, that it reminds us of your great love through your forgiveness that we can trust in you and that your forgiveness is sufficient and that we can find hope for our future because of what you have done with our past. And Father, I pray that in that we walk faithfully with you. I pray, Father, that we seek you and worship you and find our hope in you. May we rest in your sovereign control, your promise of our eternal security, because of what you will accomplish on our behalf. We rest in you. I pray especially today that as we go forth, we understand and experience and appreciate the peace that we have in you. We pray this in your name. Amen.